So imagine with me that you're sitting with a friend. And this friend has very different values and beliefs than you. It might be at school or at work or, or somewhere else. Exposure to the Christian faith. But the conversation goes on and they ask you, well, what did you do on Sunday? And you tell them, I, I went to church. They ask what, what church you go to and they ask a couple more questions. And you wonder, is this the moment I've been waiting for? Is this the moment I tell them about Jesus? But as you think about whether you should talk to them about Jesus, fears and doubts start flooding your mind like an ocean. Is this the right moment? Maybe I should wait for a clear opportunity. Will telling them about Jesus change my relationship with them? Will they think less of me? Will they reject me? Surely I've shared the gospel with so many others and they haven't believed. Why would this person? I don't even know where to start. So you dance around the subject and shift the conversation to COVID-19 or that crazy snowstorm this week, which was pretty crazy. And you hope for another opportunity. Does this sound vaguely familiar? It certainly does for me. As individual Christians and as a church, one of the things that God calls us to is to evangelize. Or what that means is to simply make disciples of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, a good definition of evangelism is that it is teaching the gospel, the message from God, that leads to salvation with the aim to persuade. So teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And we fulfill the Great Commission, one of the ways we fulfill the Great Commission, is by bringing the gospel to people in our communities. By telling them about Jesus. By telling them about this good news that we've sung about, what we've taken the Lord's Supper about, this great news about the cross and Jesus Christ. But although we often know we should evangelize, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do far less than we ought to. And this challenge is multiplied by the fact that we live in a city with people who often have very little scriptural knowledge and hold an increasingly skeptical view towards our message. We face the fear of rejection, feel daunted at the task at hand, and lack perseverance based on prior experience. But God can help us to be people who courageously evangelize in the city. And, and that's what we're called to, and that's what I'm calling you today. To commit yourself once again, or maybe for the first time, to be someone who's committed to courageous evangelism in the city. So to encourage us to face the task at hand, I want to bring before you today the example of the Apostle Paul. In, in Acts 17, as he tells the people in Athens about the gospel. So Luke, the author of Acts, recorded this story, and one of the explicit reasons he, he records it is to provide Christians with an example on how Paul shared his faith. And Paul's example is one that shows us what, it's lo what it looks like to be committed to courageous evangelism in the city. So we'll be looking at three main things. We'll be looking at what should motivate you to evangelism, 
what your message should be, and the expectations we should have. So I want to start by looking at our motivation. And the motivation we, look, we see in Acts 17, particularly verse 16, is God's glory in the fate of souls. God's glory in the fate of souls. So in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is on a missionary journey. When he, and on this journey, he faces persecution in Berea. So he flees nearly 195 kilometers south to the city of Athens. And Athens is just a pit stop in Paul's journeys as he waits for his co-workers to, to meet him. And in Athens, Paul finds himself in one of the greatest cities the world has ever known. My grandma's from Athens, so she would definitely say that. <laughs> but th this city is renowned for its culture, its history, and its architecture. But Paul sees the city with the eyes of a Christian. He sees a city that is devoted to idols. He doesn't see all the great architecture. He sees it, but that's not what he really cares about. And this city is really devoted to idols. There are so many altars, statues, and temples in Athens that one Roman writer from that period said that it is easier to find a god than find a man in Athens. So as Paul sees these idols and the people worshipping them, the text says this. It says his spirit was provoked within him. Paul is angered, troubled, and provoked by a city that is devoted to the worship of false gods. So, so what does he do? Does he pronounce a curse upon them? Does he complain? Does he try to burn all the false gods? No, he doesn't. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them, he evangelizes to them. Acts 17, 16 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul was just persecuted for evangelizing in Berea. Athens is just a pit stop. Nobody would fault, for, fault him for not saying anything about Jesus. It's his vacation. He's just he's taking time off and, and waiting for people. But Paul is so deeply affected by the idolatry in the city that he can't help but courageously evangelize in Athens. Why? What precisely moved Paul to evangelize in the city? Well, the first thing we can say is that Paul has a passion for Christ's glory. He has been miraculously saved by God through the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants this Christ. He knows that this Christ deserves all worship, glory, and praise. So when Paul sees false gods being worshipped instead of the true Lord of the universe, he's outraged. Christ is being robbed of the glory that he's owed. Paul would have agreed with this quote by Abraham Kuyper, who says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of existence that Christ is not Lord over all, that he does not exclaim, Mine. That's Athens, that's Toronto. 
Many of you have probably experienced group projects. If you're a diligent person, group projects can be very frustrating. Because there's often one person in the group who doesn't take, who doesn't do much, but takes credit for the work that you did. And that, and that can really irk us, right, when somebody does that. That's something that's happening to God. When people worship idols instead of God, God does not get the rightful credit and worship He alone deserves. These idols are wrongly being adored, wrongly being worshipped, wrongly being praised. And in Paul's zeal for Christ's glory, he can't allow that to happen. Toronto has some similarities to Athens, right? Christ is not adored in much of this city. Instead of being adored, his name is often used as a curse word. In his place, people fill their lives with various idols. They find their life meaning and purpose in the work they do, in their family, in secular ideas, in adoration of athletes, entertainers, and politicians. The creator of the universe is simply relegated to just being one of many religions. Does that move you? Is your heart moved that your Lord isn't worshipped? Is your heart moved that Christ isn't acknowledged as Lord in most of the homes, in the apartment buildings, in the condominiums in the city? Or more personally, is your heart moved that Christ isn't worshipped in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, even your family. It ought to move you. And if it doesn't, pray that it will. Pray, Lord, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Holding this firm conviction that Christ's name ought to be hallowed, glorified, and praised will give us courage in our evangelism. Another reality that fueled Paul's desire to evangelize was the great compassion he had for people who are not following Jesus Christ. As Paul sees a people who are devoted to idols, his heart wills, wells up with pity. His heart wells up with mercy. This isn't necessarily explicit in this passage, but we can see this clearly through, through another passage. In Romans 9, 2-3, as Paul thinks about his fellow Israelites, he says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Look how much sorrow Paul has for these people to know Christ. He'd rather go to hell than have them go to hell. To have them, than have them face judgment. That's how much sorrow he has for them. And this scene reminds me of a passage that Julian preached from last year in Matthew 9, 36-37. Jesus, it talks about Jesus when he saw the crowds, so he sees this mass of people. He had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then look at Jesus' reaction to that feeling of compassion. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, 
but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So Jesus feels this compassion for souls, and he wants people to pray for workers to tell Jesus, to, to tell the good news of the kingdom of God to people. So compassion for souls leads to a heart that wants to evangelize. Perhaps some of you may be uncomfortable with this message that I'm preaching. You, you might not be a Christian, and you may think that Christians should be free to worship their God, but they shouldn't seek to persuade anyone else to become a Christian. And, and, but I, I want to tell you this. The reason your friend or your parents is telling you about this message, this gospel message, is that they love you. Christians have been changed by the good message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, and we want you to know that. And we don't want you to face the judgment of God. We want you to trust in Jesus, and it would honestly be unloving and unkind if we weren't to tell you about Jesus. For Christians, these two convictions that I've talked about so far, concern for God's glory and a concern for the fate of souls, can help you evangelize. These two convictions, if they're, if they're deeply planted in your soul, can lead to a life marked and characterized by courageous evangelism. Pray that God would plant these truths deep in your heart, deep in your soul. Pray over these truths on a regular basis. But these convictions aren't just formed as individuals, but also as a church community. They're both caught and taught. As a church, we want to model a concern for souls and God's glory by praying about them in our public prayer. We, we also, as you come to prayer meetings, we will regularly be met with other believers who are passionately preparing, praying for people to be saved. Also in our church, one way you could just continue to um, want to share the gospel is get involved in our, in our children's ministry. Because, because I have found when you tell kids about the gospel, you get comfortable sharing it in a more safe environment. And that builds courage in your life in different aspects of your life as you share the gospel. There are also occasional opportunities throughout the church to go with others as we evangelize. From experience, I have found that as you evangelize in community and talk to people of Jesus, that can give you in your own personal life a greater compassion for people and a greater concern for God's glory. I, I would also say, one of my questions um, for you as well would be, are you friends with people who aren't Christians? Do you have them in your life? Are you regularly, like, can you evangelize to someone? Um, I, I think that's just a good question that each one of us should, should ask ourselves. So far we have seen that courageous evangelism is motivated by God's glory and compassion for souls. It's great to have a motivation to evangelism, but Lord willing, as you get opportunities to tell people about Jesus, the question then becomes this, what exactly do I say? And Paul here provides us with, with some wise wisdom as to what to say. And what he does, he tells people the whole gospel. So that is what our, our message is. We tell people the whole gospel. 
So starting in verse 22, Paul is invited by the leaders of Athens to explain his message. So as he's given this opportunity, you will notice from verses 22 all the way to 31, he doesn't go straight to talking about Jesus. Instead, he carefully and intentionally fits the message of Jesus Christ within the broader story of God and his dealings with mankind. So before he gets to Jesus, he wants to provide the framework of the story. Have you ever had the experience of coming in late to a movie that others are watching? You may have come into the final scene, and those around you are like crying, bawling their eyes out. But the scene leaves little impact to you, because you don't know the rest of the story. For the person on the couch who's been watching the whole movie the, movie the whole time, knows the characters inside and out, knows every detail of the story, the scene is much more impactful. Similarly, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is more powerful and impactful when people know the rest of the story. Sometimes we can assume that people know more about the Bible and Jesus Christ than they actually do. And when we go straight to Jesus, it's like we've skipped to the end of the movie. God can still and often does use that. Sometimes the conversation naturally lends itself to talking about Jesus first, and then these things later. But, um, and I want to encourage you to, to take the opportunities you're given. But I believe that following Paul's example, that's seen in his message in verses 22 to 31, we can, we can, this will lead to more impactful conversations. So before Paul tells the whole story of the gospel, you'll notice in verses 22 to 24, 23, he begins his conversation by subtly pointing out the instability of their devotion to idols and the restlessness of their souls. Even though they worshipped false God, all these gods, they still felt the need to place an altar to an unknown God. They're longing and restless for more. Paul uses their longings and their restlessness for another God as a gateway to his main message. And if you've noticed in, in our messages, and as we talk about the gospel in this church, we often do something like that. We often talk about people's idols in their lives. And we talk about the unsatisfied longings of our hearts. And that's something everyone experiences. And those unsatisfied longings of people's hearts can often be a great way to transition to the gospel. But in verses 24 to 31, Paul gets into his main message. In verses 24 to 25, he presents God as the creator who made the world and everything in it and is completely self-sustaining. In verses 26 to 28, he establishes that this God is the one who has created all human beings through one man and is actively involved as the Lord of all history. And then he, he explains who men are in relation to God. He says, you, we are God's offspring, which means we are made in His image to have a special connection and relationship to God. Having established the uniqueness of God and the nature of man, in verse 29 he points out their sin, their idolatry. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think 
that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Notice that Paul does not go through every single story of the Bible before going to Jesus, but he does do, but he does tell them of basic truths of who God is, what He's like, who we are in relation to God, and the sin problem we have. He lays out a foundation before he gets into um, the heart of the gospel message. So after Paul discusses the, the foundational elements of the Christian faith, he then gets to the heart of the message. He calls the people to repent of their sin. And he warns them of a day that Jesus Christ will come to the world in perfect righteousness. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice here that once again, Paul tells the whole gospel. He's conscious of his audience and merciful and gracious in his presentation. Yet he does not shy away from telling the parts of the Christian gospel that could potentially offend. He courageously tells them that Christ Jesus will come in judgment. He tells them that they all need to repent. That God commands them to repent. He also tells them the very scandalous thing that they end up mocking him for, which is that Christ raised from the dead. He tells them the whole gospel. And friends, this is the whole gospel message that we stand behind and proclaim. But you will notice one thing in this, in this little summary. You may notice that some essential elements of the gospel message are missing from Paul's speech. Paul does not have an explicit call to believe in Jesus Christ, and that the death that Jesus Christ died on the cross that secures forgiveness for sins, the very things we talked about today. This seems to be because Paul is cut off by members of the audience who mock him. Otherwise, he undoubtedly would have spoken these central truths of the Christian message, that Christ died for sinners and that you need to believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. And if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ, I would plead with you to take God's command of repentance seriously. God commands all people everywhere, including you, to repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ. Obey that command even today. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. He, he's worth it all. So for Christians in our church, we have seen that you should strive to tell the whole story of the gospel. How do we do this? Well, as a church, we are committed to telling the whole story of the gospel in our preaching. You will notice in our preaching that we're consistently preaching from different genres of scripture. And this is for Christians, but it's also for those who are not Christians. To hear the whole storyline of scripture and see how even Amos and Genesis and Exodus and Joshua connect to Jesus Christ. We, in our children's ministry, we use a gospel curriculum, gospel project curriculum, 
that takes them through the major points of the Bible story in three years and ties each story to Jesus. So today they're learning about Moses and the golden calf in, I believe it's Exodus 33, and learning how Jesus is the greatest, greater mediator. So, so they're learning about Moses and Jesus and the connections there. So, it's, so we are do, trying to do this in our church. But we can also do this in a personal story, right? Telling people the whole gospel doesn't have to take three years. It can be done in a 15-minute conversation. Start with who God is, who we are, the fall, then go to Jesus Christ. If you need help, you can ask me. We have great literature available that will walk you through how to do that, and pamphlets that you can give to people who aren't Christians. But I also want to say that evangelical opportunities don't always go the precise way that we're, they're drawn up, right? We have a great plan, we go into them, we're going to tell them this whole story, then it just doesn't work that way. And so, so I, I just want to say, be encouraged that even if it doesn't go exactly how you plan, or you get to tell them all these things, um, God by His Spirit still uses that. He's used it in our life, and He'll use it in other people's lives as well. As Paul gets to the end of his message, in verse 31, in verses 32 to 34, we're told of several different responses as he gets to the gospel. And these different responses teach us the expectation that you should have as you evangelize. Our expectation is this, both opposition and acceptance. Some will oppose, some will believe. Having the right expectation in life helps you persevere. I think some of us have probably been to a job where the expectation that we had when going into the job was very different from what happened when we were actually there. We thought it would be 9 to 5, but it's actually 8 to 8. <laughs> and when that happens, um, it's harder when difficulty comes. Similarly, with evangelism, it's really helpful to have the right expectations. So first we see, the first thing we see from how they react to Paul's message is that some instantly oppose and reject the message. This, the text says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So what's happening, it seems like he's preached them the gospel, the resurrection of the dead comes, comes, and they're instantly like just mocking and jeering him. Their worldview could not accept that God would ever raise a man from the dead. And this is probably the response that scares us away from evangelism the most, right? We don't want to be mocked for our faith. We, we don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be thought less of. We fear that if we share the gospel with co-workers, with family members, with the stranger on the street, we will be mocked. And the truth is, regardless of how delicate and winsome you are in your presentation of the gospel, or regardless of how smooth you are in your transition to talking about your faith, some people will reject, and some people will mock. You certainly shouldn't give any reason for them to do that. I've been in certain situations where people have given plenty reason to oppose the message. Um, but you must be gentle and loving. If people don't like hear, some people don't like hearing the gospel message. 
sometimes is met by hostility. Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, 14-16 is really helpful to keep in mind. Particularly in our day where it does feel like there's a good chance that sometimes it will be opposed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you should be blessed. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Did you get that? It says if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that includes being mocked for sharing the gospel, you should be blessed. There's heavenly reward if you share the gospel and someone rejects you. The, the second reaction we see are those who give a delayed response to the message. They say, we will hear you again on this. They might have said it differently. Yeah, we're, like, we actually will really hear you again on this. It doesn't quite say in the text. In my view, it's clear that anyone who hears the gospel should, should immediately respond and obey Christ's gospel. But God is patient. And, and He's been patient to a lot of us, right? He's often used long-term relationships and several gospel conversations and many sermons to see us saved and to see people saved. And when people lay their response to the gospel, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope when your family member who you've been consistently praying for for years and shows some signs of, of encouragement to the gospel message, but other times does not. Don't lose hope when that prodigal son or daughter is still living away from the Lord. Don't lose hope when your close friend has not given their life yet to Christ. Don't lose hope. God can still change their life. Keep on praying. Keep on sharing as you get an opportunity. And I've heard an illustration that's helpful. If a pebble is in your shoe, often you will not address it. But it still bothers you. And someday you have to address it. Like a pebble in a shoe that bothers you until it has to be addressed, one conversation can be a pebble in a shoe that a person has to address down the road. Your gospel sharing might be part of a bigger story that God is writing in that person's life. And God sometimes uses these pebbles in very big ways. The third reaction that we see here is that some instantly believe the message. It says, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, I cannot pronounce that word at all, <laughs> and a woman named Damaris, and others who were with them. Despite that this is a city full of idols, despite that Paul faced opposition, some believed. Dionysus, a person who is named after a Greek god, who had most likely lived a life devoted to idols, was converted. God uses the gospel and courageous evangelism to save people's lives. I find that one of my issues 
in sharing the gospel is that sometimes I can struggle to believe that God will save this person. I've had many gospel conversations and been rejected many times and sometimes there's a lack of faith. But God does save people. He can save people. And I of all persons should know because he did it in my family. My dad was 23 years old and had not been exposed to a clear gospel growing up. At 23, he was looking for the purpose of life, so he decided to travel the world. And started by taking a French class, of all places, in Quebec City, at Laval University. There he met a missionary named, named Philip, and my, as my dad always says, he didn't know the difference between a missionary and a mercenary. He just was kind of intrigued. Perhaps this man did humanitarian work. So he says to Philip, hey, like, like so can we have a conversation? So, so the next day, they go to the A&W Laval University. And there, my, Philip shares the gospel with my dad. He talks to him that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He tells him that he needs Christ. Within three minutes, my dad believes. Within three minutes, my dad's entire life has changed. God saves people. And he can use your humble, ordinary, courageous conversations about the gospel in extraordinary ways. And our, our confidence that people will believe of, of hearing in the gospel does not lie in our abilities. It's in the hand of God. The Lord is the one who converts souls. He's the one that changes lives. All we can do is be faithful. All we can do is be faithful to share the gospel and trust that God will work. That just like he, he changed Lydia's life in the previous chapter, he opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. He can do it to the people we talk to. So faithfully tell others about Jesus, God will do the rest. Friends, God has given our church and you as individuals a great task. To share this glorious gospel, the gospel that changed your life, can change many lives in your families, in your neighborhoods, and across the city. Don't lose hope. Keep, keep on or just start sharing the gospel. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that very familiar scene of missing opportunity to share the gospel with a person. Well, I'm confident that we serve a God who by His Spirit and His Word is more than able to give you the courage to share your faith with that person in the future. Now let us just pr pray to this God.